The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Betterment was built to answer the question, what is the best way to invest my money? Tracking your investments shouldn't be confusing or frustrating. Betterment strongly believes that managing your wealth should be an easy and enjoyable experience. Betterment customers believe technology can improve their daily lives. Use Uber, Netflix, and Amazon. Betterment customers are just like you. Betterment aims to make it straightforward. Create an account, tell them your financial situation, and their advice platform will build you a personalized portfolio for your goals and desired levels of risk. For each goal, retirement, house down payment, Whatever. You set, you determine how aggressive or conservative you want to be. Based on this information, we'll take care of the underlying investments and can implement tax-saving strategies. One fun thing to play around with is their retire guide, which you'll find on their homepage under retirement, and it will give you an idea of what you need to save to reach your retirement goals. Now, there is always risk in investing. However, with Betterment, we can help you avoid the emotion and sales tactics that often plague the financial industry. Investing involves risk. For a limited time, listeners can get one month managed for free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash with friends. Again, that's Betterment.com slash with friends. Betterment. Investing made better. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about difficult conversations, awkward pauses, and relationships and politics and politics and relationships. Uh, really happy about the show this week. I get to talk to two of my very favorite people in the world. Uh, in the second part of the program, I talk to Doreen St. Felix, who is for now a colleague of mine at MTV News. Uh, she writes about everything under the sun, music, fashion, politics, culture. And we talk about the legacy of Hillary Clinton and what the autopsies of her campaign get right and wrong. And I think most enjoyably, to be honest, we talk about aesthetics of the presidency um, from Trump to Obama and Obama to Trump. Um, she's got such great insight on that stuff. I, I think I might have her back as my regular fashion correspondent. But up first is Parker Malloy. Uh, if you're on Twitter, uh, you might follow her. She is hilarious um, and topical and feisty. She's at Parker Malloy. She's a writer for Upworthy.com. And... Um, she happens to be a trans person. Uh, and I talked to her about, you know, her decision to be out and what's that like from her side of the screen coming right up. Let's just dive right in because I know I don't have you right. for that long. Um, so I you do spend a lot of time on Twitter and I do as well. And that's sort of where I know you know you from. Um, basically, the show could be people I know from Twitter 
the podcast. Um, and I believe actually our first few interactions, correct me if I'm wrong, were actually uh, somewhat salty, as I recall. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> totally. Well, first, first off, I mean, I, I, I have I have a tendency to sometimes sometimes be a little. Um, I used to be a little more of a firebrand. You know, used used to be a bit, a little more of a flamethrower, uh, but yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly, I forgot what it was, but yeah, there was something you said that it's just like, yeah, I, our interaction was not exactly positive, right? But it kind of grew. It was one of these things where we disagreed in a way that still worked out to where I was like, okay, I guess I'll follow her. But I want to say specifically, it had something to do with trans activism. I think. I think so. Um, I can't. I can't recall what the exact situation was. But, I think it's funny that we can't recall um, what it is, but I think that's important yeah. because, you know, you were probably the first like kind of non-celebrity trans person mm-hmm. that I had like a significant kind of interaction with, mm-hmm. right? And and you you it's in you know it's in what you do. You're very out about it, and I listen. I mean, I remember thinking to myself, well, you know what? Like, I gosh, I gotta. I should listen to this person, you know, like this person speaking from from experience that I don't have. And I said something I, and I actually think it was something where I kind of said I might I, I gave some ground <laughs> like you brought some authority and some, you know, um, thoughtfulness to the conversation. I believe you were salty, but um, you I remember thinking like, OK, I should listen to this person. And. The reason why I I sort of mentioned this kind of specifically is because, you know, I wanted to talk to you about the concept of outness and being out. But like you being out is what what made me kind of like pause more than I would for someone else, which Uh maybe isn't fair, maybe speaks badly of me. But it was important. Yeah. Well, so so, you know, the whole the whole, you know, thing about being out, not being out it's 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 a very personal sort of decision i mean my my um uh, man my 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 person like i just have no confidence in myself i oh. i would always assume that everyone i'd run into would just immediately know i'm trans and mm-hmm. that's not the case like if i it it turns out if i talk to strangers <laughs> and, you know, I, I can know know people and you know see them in person and talk to them and whatever and then and like they don't know I'm trans until they like stumble across some article that I wrote and they're like wait I didn't know this I was like yeah mm-hmm. you know no biggie but I just assumed that everyone would would be able to tell or would figure it out so I was just like I'm just gonna be really open with it so I would introduce myself in a way that was always very much like awkward like hey I'm trans and I hope that's not a big deal and you know like I just just I'm trying to be a normal person. Like, like not at like grocery stores and stuff, right? But you know, yeah, yeah not at grocery. <laughs> Anytime I met someone new, um, right? And and that was it because it was a big fear of mine. It was like because all I wanted, all I still want in the world is to really just be able to blend in and exist. And you know, I I I love it if in the world I I didn't have to talk about trans stuff that that mm-hmm. it, these issues just kind of went away. Um, but sadly, they um they they aren't anytime soon. Uh, and I, I, and it's, it's really disappointing, but yeah, I mean, I, uh, had kind of that decision, like, do I, do I, uh, you know, do I kind of stay, uh, stealth or hidden or, you know, hide who, who I am 
but then I noticed that there was a lot happening in the media uh, around the time I came came out as trans, where things were just being reported so horribly. Mm-hmm. People were being called the wrong names, the wrong pronouns. The they were just you know it was still a time where trans people were being treated like uh, like like freaks of nature essentially um, by mainstream news outlets by like CNN and um, you know MSNBC like the it was it was bad and so i started blogging and i started just blogging about my experience and i never thought that anyone would actually want to pay me to write mm-hmm. i think i remember writing you an email being like how do i find a job writing mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like it's hard and that was kind of <laughs> i was so helpful <laughs> yeah well it, but it's true it's like there it's there's no clear cut way so it was one of those things where it's just like i i'd write things and then i'd send emails to random editors i'd find online and be like hey interested in running a piece about, you know, something trans related. And a lot of, a lot of the reaction was really cold Mm. up until when Chelsea Manning came out as trans. Uh, Suddenly I went from having no one interested in running any of my articles to suddenly people were running to, running to me, sending me emails to be like, Hey, hi, I'm so-and-so from whatever. I'm really interested in running an article of yours about trans stuff. Uh, because it was it was a situation where it was another non-celebrity trans person uh, who just came out, and a lot of people were very confused about these types of things. So, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of cool. It wasn't someone in Hollywood. It was uh, it was someone whose situation and circumstances were very uh, controversial in themselves. So then you add this layer to it, and it's like, how do we talk about this? And that's where I kind of came in and got a few uh, got a few writing gigs, and it's all kind of been. Uh, you know, it's all kind of gone from there. And I never really expected to be so out with being trans, but, you know, that kind of what laid the foundation for at least a couple of years, a couple of years of writing about almost exclusively trans stuff until I was able to establish myself and start writing and talking about things that don't have to do with trans issues. It's a delicate thing in a way. I mean, I I mean, I've talked to, you know, my friends um, who are people of color, writers who are people of color about this too, where, you know, you want, you know, you can't blame editors for wanting to have an authentic uh, Mm -hmm. voice and, and again, have someone that brings a particular set of experiences to a topic, right? You want to have someone speak with authority and authenticity about something, but at the same time, like, that can't be the you, you can't like look at that person as the that's the only thing they can write about, you know, mm-hmm. like it's exactly. not really fair to anyone. Um, I, but I want to get back a little bit because you said, you know, you, you just assume everybody knows and that you are mm-hmm. self-conscious about that. And, uh, you know, the one sort of place in my life where I can draw a little bit of trying to um think a little bit about what I might feel that could be what, like, you're feeling. I obviously can't put myself completely in your place. But it's about, you know, being out as an alcoholic and as someone who has Mm -hmm. mental health issues, which is that I have actually, when I first, like, kind of realized I was an alcoholic and trying to get sober, I did kind of assume that that was something that everyone knew. And I might as well just start saying it. Like, and also you get so used to saying it at meetings. Like, I would be like, Mm -hmm. I would be like walking into people in grocery stores and be like, hi, I'm I'm an alcoholic, you know. (laughs) Um, And it didn't. Yeah, it didn't feel like, I mean, it was a choice on one level, but at the same time, I kind of felt like, well, I better just, you know, like kind of go with this, right? Like, yeah, it, it's, um, I I also, because I think we might have this in common, I don't quite know how to be anything else. 
I don't quite know how huh. to cover it up. Like, yeah, I, I think, I think that's really interesting. Um, because yeah, I mean, and I think that, you know, really, I feel like everyone has something that they can relate to in that sort of way, their own, whether it's, you know, a quirk or it's a medical condition or it's a, it's something like, like being an alcoholic or being trans or, yeah, um, you know, anything like that, where it's just kind of an, an albatross that hang, hangs around our neck that kind of, uh, you know, that we, that we assume that others can just kind of constantly see. And uh, so, so we make excuses for it. We, t- we are open and talk about these things when maybe we don't need to, but maybe we do it for our own um, comfort or for the purpose of educating others uh, or to avoid which I think this is this is in in my situation. It's to to avoid a very awkward situation later. Like I'd rather control the terms of when I tell mm-hmm. someone I'm trans rather than get into like, uh, <laughs> for example, like uh, go to, going to a doctor's office <laughs> and they'll be like they'll be like, so when was your last period? And I'll be like, never. And they'll be like, why? I'll be like, I don't have a uterus. <laughs> and they're like, what? Whoa, 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 why? And I'm like, okay, God, you know, it's like, like in those situations, it's like, okay, I try to like dance around the, the question because sometimes it does, you know, like obviously most doctors, it's good to, you know, mm-hmm. I let, I let them know as much ahead of time as possible. But like, I went to a dermatologist to look at a bump on my leg. You know, it's like that person probably doesn't need to know my whole trans history. <laughs> Same thing with a dentist. <laughs> Which speaking of, I went to a dentist for the, for the first time in 10 years. Oh, right. It was, it was less than ideal. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, yeah, we all have these things that, um, you know, personality traits or, uh, characteristics that, that we bring with us and it's, it's what we contribute to society and to the world and to ourselves. And, you know, it, it makes us all unique and different and, uh, you know, I I do find it interesting to to think about how people uh, relate to all these things in different ways on a personal level and how they perceive others. I feel mm-hmm. like some things like being an alcoholic, for instance, or being trans or, uh, you know, uh, dealing with mental illness, you know, these are things that in a lot of ways are still stigmatized. Mm-hmm. And by talking about them, we have the opportunity to try to take a forceful step toward destigmatizing them. Um, whereas if we were silent, you know, we're, it's neutral. Right. Um, but that's, that's an issue. Right. The, the stigma, stigma, stigma that comes, comes with things like, uh, you know, then being you an alcoholic or being trans, disabled, or you, mentally I know you, ill, you I know, know you these, these heard... sorts of things that kind of uh, follow a lot of us around. And I know you must have heard, or I don't assume, but the uh, episode that I did with disability rights issues with Alice yeah. Wong. Yeah. Um, I think that I talked to her a little bit about the parallel with alcoholism and mental illness. And she also pointed out that technically both of those are disabilities, too. So, <laughs> you know, I'm one. She said she congratulated me on, you know, welcomed me into the tribe uh, of of the disabled, which I embrace. They are technically disabilities and are in some ways, right? Disabilities. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I think that, the, you know, what I think about when the parallels, I think about how I think it is really important, the idea that we're controlling what it is that people know about us and when. That's a very powerful thing, right? Like, even mm-hmm. if it feels like it's unavoidable, like I'm going to have to say this at some point, when you say it first, it is it is a way of, of setting the terms. Um, yeah. And you don't have to think about it anymore. Right. And it's cla- yeah. and it's claiming it, too. It's like, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why in 12-step programs, it is always part of the ritual that we say our names and our, you know, what, what we're there for. Because <laughs> it's like part, because it's, it's part of like, it's just part of who I am, you know, like, and, and it's as important a thing as anything else. Like I would say, you know, equally important are things like I'm an alcoholic, I'm a redhead, I'm the born on the cusp of Virgo and Libra, you know, I live in Minneapolis, like, those are all important things and all equally important, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I shouldn't say all specifically equally important. Well, They've had different kinds of impact on my life, but I don't, sure. I, I want people to think of all of them when they think of me. Right. Right. And, and I, th- I think that in, yeah, when it, when it comes to uh, trans issues and one of the reasons that a lot of people, trans people are reluctant to, you know, be, be out as mm-hmm. trans uh, is because in a lot of ways it kind of defines them. Mm. Um, and I think, uh, because there are, I like, I have a decent number of Twitter followers. I don't have your one point <laughs> something million, <laughs> but you know, uh, I have, I have a decent Twitter, Twitter, uh, crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, uh, it's one of those things that's kind of interesting because I will go a while without talking about trans issues. Then I'll talk about trans issues and I'll mention that I'm trans and I'll get a bunch of messages from people who are like, I had no clue. Mm. And it's really interesting to kind of think about, think about that. But, um, you know, I, I always worry that when someone knows that I'm trans, that that's all they see me as, Mm. that they, that they can't, um, can't see me as someone who knows a lot about, uh, politics or knows a lot about baseball. I was going to say, Cubs. About, you know, any, any of these things <laughs> that make up who I am as a person, you know, like I'm defined by far more than the fact that, you know, my gender isn't the one that, you know, uh, the doctors were like, here it is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> trying to think of the least awkward way to like you know, we are we are a proudly R-rated podcast. You can like you can be you know as explicit as you want to be, but I I'm also kind of Midwestern in that I I do appreciate it when people talk delicately about such things. Um, yeah, but I think I mean I did want to say when you were saying I just assume everyone knows. Like I don't think that's true, Parker. You know, like I think um, I, I think that that's something that you bring to the table um, and and. It is kind of I, I'm, I can see why some people might be surprised because you do write about other things. You do have other interests. Um, you know, I personally follow you for your, you know, baseball and dog posts. Like, I think those are yeah. those are probably as important to me as anything else that you do. Which which so far in this interview, I've only had to throw something at meatball once. <laughs> she was overeating, uh, <laughs> eating all my uh, rabbits in the corner of their poop. So, oh, um, you have rabbits, no too. Wait a minute. Like, this is breaking news. <laughs> Rabbits, like I have two rabbits Ugh. and they poop sometimes yeah. and meatball tries to eat it when I'm, if I do a podcast or like I'm doing like a, a meeting over like FaceTime, mm-hmm. uh, meatball knows that I can't, can't get to her. So she goes and she does all the horrible <laughs> things that, um, that she's not supposed to. So she'll go and try to eat the rabbit poop. Oh, well, um, and people of course should follow meatball. She's at Oh Meatball. Yeah. 
And she is. Yeah, a, meatball is a meatball. Meatball is pretty great. Meatball is pretty great. Concerned, pretty um, great. And, yeah. Let's go. Let's talk a little bit about the mental health stuff to, too, because that's something you're yeah, very totally. open about as well, which I appreciate as someone who's open about my uh, I, bipolar mm-hmm. diagnosis. I always, I kind of, I, I'm trying to not say bipolar disorder these days, I guess. Try to kind of like make it less. It's not a disorder. It's a thing, you know? Right. Um, and is, was that something that you also felt like, oh, people are just going to know? Or is that something that you had a little more like, I'm going to talk about this because I want to talk about this? You know, it, it was kind of, so it was kind of a little bit of, uh, a little bit of both. So a, a lot of, you know, and this, and this ties back into, you know, the, the trans stuff, because I get, I get, so I get a lot of emails from people seeking help in various mm-hmm. ways or advice or whatever, um, who are trans and like a lot of, a lot of people will just make, make the assumption that coming out as trans, going on hormones, doing all this stuff, like that, that will fix everything in their life. Um, but the, but the truth is that it will fix a lot, but what you're going to start, what you're going to notice are any underlying issues that still mm. are, that are still there that have nothing to do with being trans. So I tried to uh, open up a bit about, you know, uh, struggling a little bit with, you know, with depression and with anxiety, um, like really severe anxiety at times to the point where um, I'll be like just about ready to go out the door. And then I'll just kind of be like, I can't do it. I feel sick. I'm going to throw up, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like it gets really, really intense. But, um, you know, I decided I was going to just kind of start talking about this because, you know, a lot of the writing that I do over at, over at Upworthy, um, you know, some of it has to do with trans stuff. Some of it has to do with, um, you know, just trying, trying to spend, uh, build, build empathy, mm-hmm. it, you know, is something I try to look for, you know, how to build empathy in, in storytelling. And, you know, one of the things that I kind of found is that the most powerful stories, the most, the most impactful ones to me in like searching for stories what were ones where people just open, open themselves up. So, you know, if I want to help people and if I want to, you know, be a net positive on society, um, I felt obligated, I guess, to open myself up to, to, um, to be vulnerable and, you know, to, to put myself out there. And it was, you know, it's all, it was a lot easier when I had 5,000 Twitter followers Mm. instead of like, 77,000 uh, because it was like, I would get a couple tweets a day and sometimes they were mean, but now it's like, you know, I, I had to, I've already opened myself up. So all this stuff is out there. All my flaws are out there to the world. And it makes me question, you know, am I, should I have opened myself up to the extent that I did? And it's something that I revisit every once in a while because, uh, when you do that, people get this sense that they know you and they know what's best for you, or they view you in a different way than when you present yourself in a carefully curated, idealized version of yourself online. Um, but the the truth is that, you know, it's like with, with my, you know, mental health um, issues, it's like, it's, it's hard to put on a, you know, constantly put on, put on like a a brave face and pretend that everything 
is going okay when sometimes it's just not. And sometimes we'll just be open about it, you know, and like on, uh, on my Facebook uh, page the other day, I just kind of like straight up said, like, this has been a bad week. Uh, it's been really tough with my depression. I've been struggling and here's what's been bothering me. And I just said it was a friends only type post, but it was something that I, I felt that I needed to do it just for the sake of venting, but also that uh, it's it's just honest. And I feel that maybe there are some people who will see that and go, okay, I'm not feeling alone because that's one of my biggest fears is to be alone in any way, any shape. Um, and as much as we like to decry online, oh, it's, that's just online and that's not in person. It's not real life. It's like being online, that is real life. Like, you know, some of my best friends, some of my favorite people in the world are people that I know only online. You know, you're one of those people. Yeah. You're one of my favorite people in the oh. whole world. Well, you're and, one of my favorite um, people too, Parker. And we've never met in person. Right. Uh, but it's 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 one of those things that, um, you know, if I want to be a good friend to others, I need to be, um, you know, open about open about myself. So, you know, basically curating my life in that way, in that open, honest way is my attempt to be a good friend to those who I know and those I don't know. Yeah, I think that I think it really matters. Um, again, sort of to go to the places in my life where I feel some, you know, kinship around uh, mental health and around um, being an addict alcoholic. Like, I don't think people who are that way in public, people who have come out in whatever way that is a stigmatized identity Sometimes I think it they don't realize what it means to those of us who haven't come out yet, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I'm going to start. Mm. Like, I think of uh, David Carr, who was a good friend of mine mm-hmm. and who was uh, a joyously in recovery, you know? Like, he lived his life in this completely open way and with such joy. Like, he really showed me like that you could be a full person that for some reason, like, you know, like I had in my head that if I got sober for one, no one would like me because I wouldn't be fun anymore. Um, And that it would be like this crippling thing, like to have to be sober all Mm -hmm. the time. Right. And to have to like live inside sobriety. And he, he, he showed me that was not the case, you know? And then like, you know, as I think we both um, adore Carrie Fisher and she, was so open about who she was and again like showed that you know these things that are stigmatized that feel like a prison when you're inside them you know Mm -hmm. are not and don't have to be i i 100 percent agree um and that's i mean and 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 that's uh, the the worst thing in the world (laughs) in my opinion to me is feeling uh, feeling alone and feeling broken mm-hmm. um, and seeing other people publicly, you know, acknowledge some of the same struggles that I've had has been tremendously, uh, has been a tremendous help mm-hmm. uh, it, to, for myself to try to, um, you know, feel less, feel less broken, feel less alone in the world. When I, when I would read uh, Carrie Fisher's books, where she's talking about, um, you know, talking about mental illness. It's like, okay, I get that. I get that. See, there she is, like, 
things seem to be going well in her life. Things <laughs> seem to be great for her. Or not well, but and she's great. It, it, but well, yeah, but but she's um, you know she but she still struggled with all these mm-hmm. things beneath the surface that she then opened up about, which I thought that that was really powerful to me, and it was really sad when she when she died last year, but you know, she did so much good and it goes so much further beyond her, her acting. So I think that, and and that's kind of another message that I, that I take. It's like, I may be, uh, you know, I may be a writer, uh, you know, writing articles most days, but at, at the end of the day, it's like, I feel like I'm going to affect the lives of others in so many other ways. You know, people I know, people who meet me later in life and we all do. And so, you know, I try to think about, how all these extra steps and these extra lengths and extra, um, you know, things we do in life can have a, have a broad positive impact. And of course I'm, I'm not perfect and I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm not, I'm not always a, uh, great, uh, any sort of role model, you know, <laughs> like, like you said, like our first interaction was pretty salty yeah. and I, you know, used to get in all these like really, really wild, really over the top, like internet fights with people but I'm trying to like learn and grow on, on that and be better because, you know, I see people doing good in the world and I want to emulate that. I think um, that's a perfect note to end on. And uh, I know you have to go. So mm-hmm. um, are you going to the dentist or the doctor? Uh, I'm going to the doctor. Got to get some stitches out. Oh, okay. Well, I hope you're well. Yeah. Um, I did. I remember actually you tweeted yeah. about the, the dentist thing, and I I think I told you like I would do the exact same thing when I was actually in my addiction. Like I didn't go to the dentist at all because yeah. it's this weird form well, of like lack of self care. One of the reasons, one of the, one of the reasons <laughs> I used to not go to the not go to the dentist was after I came out as trans. I was always worried that people that anyone who got that close to my face mm. would be able to just tell, you know, oh. where it would be like, oh, I can see, oh, there's some facial hair, you know, like up until like zapped it off with lasers and stuff. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah. It's, avoided a, it's it. funny how like those things, like those little things impact our lives. And I think yeah, um, you don't really think about, you know, the other people don't think about. about right. Uh, but but any, I think about them constantly. <laughs> well, yeah. And more people than you realize think about it, too. That's mm-hmm. that's the powerful thing. Um, but anyway, it's been great talking to you, um, uh, writer at Epworthy. Parker Malloy, um, be well, uh, snuggle meatball for me and say hi to Kayla. Will do. All right. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Go Cubs. (laughs) You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. So I actually use Squarespace myself. I used Squarespace before they became a sponsor. I use Squarespace because it's so easy. Like I've been using the internet and been building websites since before like literally probably a lot of you were born. Um, I did HTML code with my own own fat little fingers. Uh, and so I have the experience to do it if I really want to. But these days, it's more confusing than ever. There's all kinds of like, um, you know, portfolios and albums. And you might want to do a blog. You might want to do sales. You don't know. But Squarespace does all of that for you. They have beautiful designs. All you need to do is pick a template, insert your own content, insert your own photos, and, it, and you're done. 
Um, it's so easy. Like I've actually farmed out some of the stuff to to my intern to do, um, and we both can manage it um, without too much trouble. I didn't even have to explain anything to her. Uh, it is a beautiful all-in-one platform. There is nothing to install, to patch, or upgrade ever. Squarespace provides award-winning 24-7 customer support and will help you get your own custom domain with an experience that's fully transparent and simple to set up. Make your next move. Lock down your domain and create a website to launch that idea. Use the offer code FRIENDS for 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. That's FRIENDS for 10% of your first purchase of a website or domain with Squarespace. Doreen St. Felix, who is for now a colleague of mine at MTV News. So I wanted to talk to you because, you know, we had a conversation about Hillary Clinton last year that was helpful to me. But I don't want to summarize your point for you. I I mean, I think my position on her, just to put our priors out, right, before we talk about Mm -hmm. the new information, is that I've, I've become, I've had a more positive view of her in the past no, I shouldn't say more positive. It's just more sympathetic. It's not more positive. It's more sympathetic. As I've gotten older, I've I've kind of mellowed my own view of her, but she's always been problematic for me. And while I have a lot of respect for people who see her as a feminist icon, like that has not always sat particularly well with me. And you had you had something, as I recall, somewhat parallel point of view, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. So you want to give your priors here? Yeah. So... Um, that conversation, which we had, it's almost a year to the date now. Um, My argument was basically that I completely understand that the ascendancy of Hillary Clinton's career parallels the ascendancy of a sort of mainstream girl bossy kind of feminism. But I really balk at the idea that because these two things are happening um, at the same time, that they should be conflated or made to seem as examples of the other. Right. Um, and another thing that I remember us talking about was just like the slim generational difference between us meant that I had a different awareness of Clinton from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up as a Haitian American in Brooklyn um, during the uh, the Clinton presidency in the 90s and early aughts, I was sort of like always told by different factors in my community that this person was not someone to be trusted, mm-hmm. that in fact, all the actors in that family weren't to be trusted. And I think that's where um, my lack of sympathy probably comes from. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think my sympathy for her basically grew directly from having her have to go through this election, you know, like it's basically yeah. just the sympathy of like, oh, man, that sucks for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, wow, you really drew the short straw on this one, didn't you? And and that's sort of where I guess our new conversation begins. There's this new book out called Shattered. It's a pun. Yeah. Get it? Um, you know, the doomed uh, candidacy of Hillary Clinton. Um, and I think the experience of having – of seeing her go through the gauntlet of this election definitely kind of made me more sensitive to slights against her that seemed to be gendered. And I'll tell you right away, the first excerpt I saw from this book, I believe the lead sentence is, Hillary was so mad she couldn't think straight. And I was like, all right, well, not reading you. 
(laughs) (laughs) Like that sentence in and of itself to me was like, there are so many legitimate criticisms, but right off the bat, like, I feel like the narrative is about like, I just, that sentence doesn't read the same to me, you know, saying it about a woman and I sort of turned it off. But I'm curious what you think of the, the narrative that's coming out about her campaign now, which is that mismanaged, no coherent theme, mm-hmm. um, you know, badly managed, uh, people like too concerned about, um, you know, position uh, and too concerned about, you know, um, how things look. Um, to me, a lot of that, and again, I think it's just because my having seen her go through this and having seen a bunch of criticisms that do seem pretty gendered to me, like I couldn't help but read um, a lot into this. It's like, would you be saying this about a guy? Like, would you? And that's the like that I can't help but have that be the frame that I see through right now. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely understand having that um, reaction, especially when you like. <laughs> read sentences like that in the book. But for me, I think I wasn't prior to the publication of Shattered, I wasn't totally convinced by a lot of the autopsies of the campaign that were coming out Mm -hmm. because they seem to like heavily um, depend on um, like characterizations of Hillary's personality. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a coherence to the argument that's based on, you know, all these interviews that the journalists had been doing over the past year and a half or past two years that to me, I find sort of satisfying a coherence that I think um, illuminates what we all sort of sensed, right? Like there did seem to be like, for example, when um, Clinton got sick in September, it seemed to kind of like catch a lot of her staffers by surprise as much as it did the public. And so, um, that's the part of the argument in that book that I'm most interested in, you know, like how did this tribe of political staffers completely never like, how did they never seem to unite under the common goal of getting this person to the white house as opposed to her opponent? Um, And, you know, now we can see that like that was literally Trump's staff's only goal because now they're in the White House and have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's true, right? I mean, that was like – the and that's where in the places where I, where I kind of go like, would you be saying this about a guy? Is that yeah. one of the main arguments of the book is that is that a reason or not just a reason but a primary reason for her failure was that they were never able to agree on a message or on a purpose, like why she was running. There's a lot of like energy spent talking about how um, they they just had all these different kinds of justifications or rationales and that you really just need one rationale. Every candidate needs that one powerful rationale for running. And I was like, okay, tell me why Al Gore ran, you know, um, uh, tell me why Bush ran. What was Bush's power? Like, you know, I yeah, that is true. Like, I can't t- tell you either of those things. I mean, I, Don Donald Trump had a great branding slogan, but most of the reasons when we say like, why does someone run? There, it's branding, not a like coherent ideology, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, Obama ran on hope. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's 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 not a coherent <laughs> policy really platform. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
And so, like, all of the, like, hand-wringing about how she didn't really have, like, a message and she it was it, – which which feeds into this idea that all she wanted to do was be president. She just wanted the power. She just – she didn't have a reason. It was just her turn. Like, that mm-hmm. seems really well, I think, not something you would say I about think, a guy. <laughs> yeah. I just want to quickly say that I think the – what's, like, lurking underneath that um, – critique of Hillary Clinton's campaign is that her message was that she was like the most prepared candidate in the history of presidential campaigns, Mm -hmm. right? So anytime, you know, you'd be watching a debate and some question would come up on which, you know, Trump would just like sit there and like make things up off the top of his head, Hillary Clinton actually had informed and seasoned responses because she's literally done all that work before. But the problem with that kind of um, message, for lack of a better word, is that it's not exciting. It doesn't incite people to gather around the candidate in a way that they did around Trump, right? Like nobody just wants to like vote for someone because they're good at their job. There have to be other things. We had no idea that Obama would be good at his job when he was elected. Right. And also, he hadn't done it before. I mean, I do think that maybe next time around, the message I'm going to be capable might be a little more exciting because we'll have had, you know, <laughs> four years of like, ahead of her time. <laughs> we'll, we'll have had like four years of disaster. So I think, hey, I know what the job is and I know how to do it might seem more compelling to people. And, and but I want to say like also, so we I don't think we should ever, you know, forget she did win the popular vote. So that message was compelling to some people. <laughs> but it's true. It's it true. wasn't compelling <laughs> to the right people. Right. It wasn't compelling to this Rust Belt um, group of, you know, disaffected white people who had various forms of anxiety and who were and were middle class. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that, um, kind of reading the writing that I did on Clinton last year, um, I wonder if a class or a group of young feminist women, young womanist women, young women of color might have over, I think there might've been an overdetermination of how much it mattered that Hillary Clinton reached out to women of a certain class, you know, women on the coast, women who were highly educated, women who are of color and not sometimes, because I do think at the end of the day, like she just had that contingency of voters in the bag, right? There was just no way that the majority of those voters weren't going to, um, to go to the polls and, and, and vote for her that day. And so I think that we ended up, a lot of feminists ended up getting caught in this like void, this conversational void of, of trying to evaluate whether or not Clinton was a feminist when that wasn't even the question that was most important to, to how she was going to win this candidacy, right? It's like, at a certain point, the presidency of the United States of America is just not going to be relevant to the question of feminism. And maybe if there had been um, uh, questions that were much more focused on questions of class and regionalism, maybe we would have approached a more appropriate way of putting her through the gauntlet last year. And there is the fact that she lost she lost white women, right? I mean, yeah. which still kind of I mean, I it doesn't I shouldn't say it blows my mind cuz it in a way it doesn't surprise me at all. Like I she's the she was the wrong person to make the the, the argument to white women, you know. 
Um, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of different sort of an, ways to unpack that. One of them I, that I think is important uh, is that uh, gender identity isn't as um, collectivizing, I think, yeah. as other kinds of identities. I think that women don't – I don't know if this was something that the Clinton campaign, like you said, like overdetermined or assumed that they had that group in the bag. But that was a very dangerous assumption <laughs> to think that because I think it's been pretty clear throughout history that you cannot assume that women will be supportive of other women and that she needed to make a different argument than that. I mean, I, I think there was a certain kind of person and I, I know these people who really responded to it's it's, you know, I'm with her stronger together. Um, it's her turn. Um, and, you know, I met women all throughout the campaign who were really moved by it, you know, um, who got tears in their eyes and uh, yeah. had profound attachment to the idea that there might that there it felt like that there was going to be a female president. But in the end, you know, that did not move a lot of people, clearly. I mean, I don't know what would have the, – the white women that voted for Trump, I'm not sure what she could have done, to be honest. Like um, like it was a foregone, foregone conclusion, you mean? Well, because it's her, like because she's had – brings a particular set of, you know, issues and baggage um, to the table that she has. Mm-hmm. Um, I just – I mean, in, in part of it in, – in, it's unfortunate because when I'm about to say the stuff I'm about to say, like I feel like a bad feminist because I think these things are tied up with her gender. But like the untrustworthiness and the power hungriness, like that stuff that like she's done – her curse is that she's – she has done a lot of the same stuff that other politicians do, male politicians do. But she gets the bad, you know, uh, rep for it, right? Mm-hmm. The, you can name almost any negative attribute of Hillary's and it will be true – of not just most male politicians, but like specifically Trump, <laughs> you know, like she's secretive and vindictive, right? Okay. Yeah. So is Trump, right? Like she um, happily plays, you know, uh, pay for play politics in the sense that she's happy to sort of, you know, accept a donation in exchange for access. So did Trump, you know, um, she's incredibly insular. So is Trump. Uh, like the only way she's the, the ways she's different from him is the fact that is the positive stuff, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> she is capable and smart and curious about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but those things uh, didn't matter, you know? I mean, I mean, there's a lot of talk that she should have done. More. I mean, you mentioned it yourself, like she should have done more outreach um, or had a better economic message. Her mutual friend, Ira Madison, the third has pointed out that, the, the black voters in Milwaukee um, and, and Pennsylvania and Philadelphia felt pretty ignored um, and, t- and assumed the assumption that they would vote for her, too, and they wound up just not turning out. Yeah. Um, do you have any fresh thought about that, like having looked at this book, having thought about it since the election? Yeah, I mean, I think to maybe kind of like recapitulate my point earlier, but to sort of like telescope it on that specific community of voters, I think um, the Mothers of the Movement uh, campaign moment is is an example that I'll use. So these women who were the mothers and sometimes 
wives of men who had been um, gunned down in police-related violence ended up, uh, I think it was started in, in November of 2015, they started traveling with Clinton on her campaign stops, you know, they kind of like debuted at the DNC and all this stuff. And I thought that that was obviously like a very like keen, uh, savvy and sentimentalist move for her. But um, the way that that movement was supposed to be a stand in for all of the problems that black um, citizens experience that lead them to be in these confrontations with the police. I think that was like a perfect encapsulation of what was so like, wrong about her campaign's approach. Everybody knows, you know, you need like an average Joe, you need some kind of like um, avatar, some kind of everyday citizen avatar for the policies that you'd like to bring to certain communities of voters. However, I thought, especially at the time, you know, it was like a very, very heated question, Black Lives Matter in these communities. I thought that instead of, you know, talking about police community relations or talking about like economic initiatives or talking about the ghettoization of American cities, just kind of like locating that huge knot of problems within these, um, this like symbolic um, figure of mothers of the movement was like a, a bit of a misstep. I thought that they were given, I think, too much of a burden to carry for this candidate who had to undo you know, more than two decades worth of conceptions about how she interacts with, with these right. communities. And what Ira was talking about, you know, that New York Times article where they like interview the guys at the barbershop who just like didn't vote because they hadn't felt that they'd been reached out to. That's exactly that. Communities are specific. You can't just like create this like grand national narrative around the many, many problems black people experience in this country and expect everyone to connect to that narrative or expect everyone to feel seen. Um, and yeah, I, th- I thought that um, the, the broad strokes were too broad. Right. And, um, and as I've, you know, told this anecdote many times, but I think it's important is that you can't, if you're, if your pitch to black voters is, the other guys are racist. That's just not much of a sales. Like that's yeah, because everybody <laughs> right. Exactly. Like black people are like, oh, really? A racist in the White House? Yeah, that would be horrible. Gosh, you know, <laughs> never had that before. Wonder what that'll be like. <laughs> I hate to laugh about it, but it's true. Like that was her pitch, right? Yeah, and then I think that's why we see such a you know big generational difference between younger black voters and older black voters, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because these younger citizens, they've come to demand more of their politicians. They're engaged in these new ways via grassroots organizing and via the internet. And I think that, um, you know, it's not good for the Democratic Party that there are young Black people who are not excited about it, you know, who are thinking (laughs) about being independents or maybe even looking towards the Republican Party. Or socialist, for that matter. I mean, I've also seen that. I mean, yeah. and I also think that this 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 conversation that you and I are having right now is not being had enough in the autopsies of Hillary's campaign. I think that the race issues get gets talked about primarily as a question of the, you know, working class white people yes. and what Trump did to appeal to them. And the part about not exciting people of color and also what that, that means for the future. Right. Exactly. 
is not something that Democrats are at least in the national conversation that people have on Twitter and that <laughs> and that national political reporters have with each other, which is pretty accurately reflected on Twitter, actually. Um, that con- that critique isn't getting made. Like, I feel like it just drops out almost entirely. Like, you talk about the mistakes she made as a candidate and not going to and, and not going to um, Wisconsin and, and Pennsylvania, but that's off- that's read entirely as not going to Rust Belt cities to appeal to white working class, not the message that I would see, like, and that, you know, Ira pointed out, which is not going to Milwaukee, not going to Philadelphia, not going, you know, or she went to Philadelphia, but, um, you know, not doing outreach in the communities of color in those Rust Belt states, which could have gotten her there. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, there are these margins that were just like so small and completely, um, you know, it's just a number of people of color who didn't vote that day. Mm. Um, yeah. And that reminds me, when Ira and I still had Speed Dial, the podcast, we had Leah <laughs> Wright Rigger on, and she uh, is a scholar at Harvard, the Kennedy School there, and she, you know, wrote this book called The Loneliness of the Black Republican. Mm-hmm. And what was so interesting in our conversation with her was that she was anticipating, right, this polarization that, um, especially after, like, what can only be described as both, like, a spiritual and ideological spike in Barack Obama, that come down, it's harsh. And so Mm. all of these, um, I I thought it was like a very critical time for the Democratic Party, not just Clinton, to really double down on their commitment to these voters. And that's not what they did. You know, they were completely just like ignored and kind of like shuffled off to the side. And like, I mean, even the way that the party is going in this like post-mortem year is even more alarming, in my opinion, because, like, it's not a foregone conclusion that Trump will not be president again in four years, or Mm -hmm. that someone, like, just as bad as him won't, won't gain that office. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. I was actually really excited to get Blue Apron as a sponsor because... I am not exaggerating. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but Blue Apron sort of saved my marriage. Um, You know, I live in a two-income household. We are both incredibly busy all the time. We both really, you know, love our jobs and thrive on um, that fulfillment. And, And that can mean that sometimes, you know, other priorities fall aside, like grocery shopping and making dinner for each other. And it was a real source of friction. Like, who's going to make dinner? What do we have in the refrigerator? You know, do we have enough time to go out and buy new stuff? So finally, we got a Blue Apron subscription. And, you know, it just takes all the thought out of having great meals. Um you know, we're no longer kind of just like making an omelet with leftovers. We're not um, uh, ordering out, you know, five times a week. Uh, the ingredients are there. They're, they're you know, pre-proportioned for you. Uh, the food is delicious. Um, it's a wide variety of stuff. Um, they have everything from, you know, Middle Eastern to pizza to, uh, you know, Asian-inspired foods to kind of your your upgraded um, uh, blue plate specials like meatloaf or, or chicken sandwiches. Um, and you know what? John and I have found that having all of that done for us allows us to concentrate on the part of cooking that's the part you do together. Like, you know, one of us can be chopping vegetables and we can have a conversation like, you know, how did your day go? And it's not like underlied with this tension of, you know, resentment 
about who had to draw the short straw to, to cook dinner. Um, research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often than other families. Um, and those who spend a lot at restaurants or other high-end grocery chains can now spend under $10 a person per meal. And again, that's less than $10 a person. Uh, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-proportioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Uh, you get to choose from a variety of recipes. You can choose what kinds of proteins uh, you want, um, uh, beef, uh, poultry, chicken. If you're ovo-lacto, you can do that. If you eat everything, if you're an omnivore, you can do that. Uh, the recipes are not repeated within a year, so you'll never get bored. Uh, Blue Apron has several delivery options, so you can choose what fits your need. There's no weekly commitment. You only get deliveries when you need them. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-proportioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. And I'll just be honest with you, like, they are a little generous with that time frame. Like, you might just want to give yourself 45, just saying. Um, check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free. That's, again, your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash friendslike. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash friendslike. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. These days, you can get practically everything on demand. This podcast comes on demand. You know, you get Uber on demand. You get your music on demand. So why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours? You can get postage on demand with stamps.com. I was just talking about how... um, you know, with my husband and I, like, have these great fulfilling careers, and it means I spend a lot of time on work. So my hours are kind of weird sometimes. I mean, that's the good and bad thing about it. Like, I can sleep in, but, you know, I have to wind up working late. And that means I have to mail packages and the post office is not open. So I can use stamps.com, and I can mail uh, merchandise to people. I can um, correspond with publishers about the books that I need or want to send back. Um, it's great. Uh, and it's easy, and you can do it from your desk like I do with Stamps.com. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes, and you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. So right now, use my name, Friends. That's actually the name of the show, not my name, but use Friends for this special offer. Four-week trial includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's stamps.com. Enter friends. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. The other thing that um, occurred to me to talk to you specifically about is the aesthetics of Trump, which is something you've written about also. And I, I, you and I have conversed about as well. I am fascinated by them, as you are. <laughs> and the article that I know we shared is was one about dictator chic. Um, and you, you also wrote your own article, but the article about dictator chic actually was by an interior designer who went through and looked at, you know, the houses and um, yeah. homes of dictators around the world and was like, that's what Trump does, too. Um, but what your your take on on Trump's aesthetic is what? <laughs> well, I can paraphrase from the article that I wrote, which I guess at this point is four years, uh, not four years. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it. It I seems it like it. The article is four months old, and um, 
the topic will always be evergreen, right? Because right. Trump and his family have become sort of icons of style, taking that term as loosely as you will. And I think icons is totally appropriate. And then style is like, yeah, that's yeah. a really I mean, general term of style. Style is a neutral term, right? There's bad yeah. style and there's good style. Right. And there's that's right. ostentatious style. And I think that's what... Um, Trump projects, although I don't think that he, I think that if you were to ask him, he wouldn't have like a definition of what his personal style is. Because I think mm. for him, style is always only an indicator of moneyedness or wealth, right? So that's why when you go to his like really shitty restaurant, um, there are paintings that are just like copies of very, um, kind of like hyperbolically lush Renaissance scenes, right? So nobody like, those are the paintings that you see when you go to that like one island target, right? That like grandma's yeah. frequent. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and it's like, it's like parodies of Renaissance style yeah, almost. Exactly. It's like, it's, and, it's what, if you didn't, if you only knew the term Renaissance style, <laughs> like what you would think it was. Yeah, that's what you would gravitate towards, you know? It's, yeah. It's a, it's a, combination of both like Frenchness and Italianness, but not mm-hmm. in the way that they manifest like in the 21st century. Um, and I think the regression that we see when we look at, you know, photos of like the Mar-a-Lago or his penthouse in New York City, or even the small changes that they've made to the interior of the White House, you see someone who like um, transmutes their insecurity into the surroundings around them right so they're just Mm -hmm. like the furniture the painting the gold it's so loud that it like basically speaks for itself and that's like absolutely the opposite direction that style has taken in the past century you know everything is like more muted and subdued people don't really have gold in their homes anymore especially wealthy people if anything they've moved to um, blacks and whites and grays so Trump completely, uh, he goes in the complete opposite direction of wealth as we've seen it manifest through personal style like fashion, but also styles that we see in homes and, and business places and that kind of stuff. And I guess that's always been part of why when we people talk about how he has to sleep, you know, on the campaign trail, he always went home to Trump Tower and all these weekends he's spending at Mar-a-Lago. Um I think it has to do with the style, you know? I think it has to do with where he feels comfortable. And it turns out even, like, a tacky hotel room isn't tacky enough for him, isn't gaudy enough for him, you know? Like, he needs to be where where he needs to be at Trump Tower. He needs to be at Mar-a-Lago. Like, in the White House definitely isn't enough for him. You know, he needs to be surrounded by these uh, signifiers of wealth, and comfort and security, I think. I think, I mean, we're psychoanalyzing, but <laughs> that's one explanation to me. Because I don't think he's ever going to read. Well, I'd ask your opinion. Like, what do you think his style, his, the impact his style is having and his aesthetics are having, like, on the White House, on the presidency? So I think, if anything, if there is an impact um, that Trump's style is having on both the presidency, but then also just like the populace at large, I think it would be a repudiation of overt wealth 
or lavishness. Um, I've actually read a couple of interesting articles by fashion critics who anticipate that um, people will kind of like move away from gold and color and these like very bombastic stylistic displays in response to how um, in response to the Trumpian aesthetic, basically, which makes a lot of sense, right? Like if mm-hmm. you're autocrat, you see in stylistic and fashion studies, whenever the autocrat like projects one kind of way of looking, often the people kind of respond by doing something else. And so um, it's funny. I don't think that there are very many people, especially in the wealthy class in America who like even still lean on those aesthetics anymore in the first place. So you have both poor people obviously being really upset when they see the excesses of Trump style, but then you also have wealthy people kind of like lampooning him and judging him because if you were a real sophisticate, if you were up to date in his cultural references, his, his places wouldn't look like that anymore. Right. Like that's like, it's like an SNL version of what a rich guy would look like in the 21st century. Um, it's very dated, it's very regressive, and it isn't imaginative, which um, all good stylists have good imagination. Like we're looking at Obama right now in his post-presidency glow, and like he's come out with these outfits that are like really creative and imaginative, and so has Michelle Obama. But Trump and Ivanka, as our pseudo-first lady, um, they hew to very staid uh stuffy aesthetics and that's not what people want from their presidents anymore i'm curious i just you did a little uh, hint at um what you've seen about obama's aesthetics lately i i i noticed he got rid of the dad jeans right he got rid of the Uh. dad jeans but more importantly michelle got rid of the mom jeans (laughs) Mm. um i think I saw this photo of Michelle. She was on vacation. You know, they've been on like a perennial vacation. (laughs) They deserved it. Five months. (laughs) And she had her hair. Her hair was completely natural. Um, Uh You know, it was in its natural textured state. And that was a really big deal. We've never seen Michelle Obama with her hair like that. And that's, of course, because the nature of the role that she was in kind of like forced her to look a certain way. And for a black woman, that often means pressing your hair or straightening it. Um, and also I think it has meant for her, uh, always being stylish, but sometimes having to like sway more towards like matronly silhouettes, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of like pencil skirt or I don't know like about matronly, but definitely and now like, there was one day they were out in New York City and they were both wearing matching pantsuits. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I have to look this up. <laughs> it's an amazing photo. I'll send it to you. And <laughs> Obama, you know, he has like two buttons undone, which he never really did when he was president. The fit is a lot more European. So it made me think about as much as we thought of uh, Michelle and Barack as like maybe the most stylish presidency in American history, they were also muting their style mm. in a certain way. They weren't going like too coastal or too fashiony. But now I think we're just going to be like, we can't wait to see Michelle and Comme de Garçon, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's funny because they were basically, I, I, you know, Michelle's go-to, 
you know, off the rack designer in, in during her time in the White House was fucking J. J. Crew. <laughs> like, I mean, there is not a whiter brand, right? <laughs> like, I struggle. Like, maybe Oshkosh. Like, I don't know. Like, it would have to be some kind of like farming implement brand that would be more white. But she definitely, like, I was going to say not matronly is one word. I, I don't think she ever. I would say I don't think she ever dressed matronly. I think she always had kind of some sass to her, like some. Um, wit yeah, that's and, and humor to her dressing, meaning like a little bit of creativity, a little bit you know, winks to certain kinds of styles. Um, but it was definitely within the boundaries of like pretty preppy, right? Like you, you know, Muffy's mom at the country club could wear the same outfit, you know? Yeah. Um, and now like what I'm hearing from you and now that I think about it, I'm also they're wearing stuff that you would not find at the country club. Yeah. Do you think they couldn't wait? Do you think they, they were like, do you think they had these outfits in their closet and were like, oh, man, the of day, uh, day like, we could already out. tailored just <laughs> waiting for November 9th. Oh my God. I mean, and there were also moments in Michelle Obama's style evolution specifically where she would insert like really furtively avant-garde looks. She often, you know, she works with really young designers, which is something that like the like, fashion world doesn't like to do all the time, you know, but mm-hmm. she would work with designers who were like straight out of school or sometimes still in school. She also worked with a lot of like non-American designers and introduced um, very new Afropolitan prints and cuts to her dresses at the White House. So she always, even though she like had to be a J. Crew model for eight mm-hmm. years, she found ways to wear designers that were definitely like off the beaten path um, for a woman in an office like that. And I, and you think she's just going to continue? Like, I always had a feeling that she did rein herself in as first lady and her personality as well, too. Like, because, you know, you and I would never have never forgotten, but I think a lot of people have. Like, she was the she was the powerhouse superstar in that relationship for a long time. I will right? never like, forget that. I will never His forget mentor, that. Mentor. <laughs> Lawful first. <laughs> yeah. Yep. She was successful first. Right. She was bringing home the bacon first. Um, And that, you know, she I'm sure it it, if nothing else, the marriage is definitely a partnership. Like you can see that in the way that they relate to each other. So I don't think like she was like, I'm going to take a step back and you're in control, honey. But it was more like this is your this is your thing. Being president is your thing. (laughs) It's not her thing. No, no. I mean, I'm looking forward to mich- – I'm really – people are all like, I wonder what Obama's going to say. I wonder what Barack Obama's going to say about Trump. I wonder what Barack Obama's going to do about Trump. I cannot wait for Michelle to let loose. I know, you know? right? Like, just like, sit down with Diane Sawyer and just give us all the tea for an hour. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, remember the speech she gave? Like, that was probably the be- – I mean, one of the best speeches she's ever given. Yeah, and it, and it was, was just an extended subtweet. <laughs> yes. Well, not even so much sub. It was like like a, a reply, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I think it was such a great rhetorical direction to go in mm-hmm. to go to in that she never used his name, right? Because yeah. um ultimately if we walk away from these next 4 years or possibly 8 years or who knows more, <laughs> if we walk away from this period of American time, without realizing that Trump was not just one man, that he was a phenomenon, will have failed. And so I Mm. think by, in that speech, the way Michelle Obama 
talks about, yeah, she references him as a singular person, but also references this tide of Mm -hmm. um, racism and all of these like incredibly dehumanizing ideologies that are springing up again in America. I think by doing that, she did something that, you know, I think Clinton probably should have done, which was to Mm -hmm. recognize that this was a movement and that the movement had origins going much, going back much earlier than like whenever Trump bought the Mar-a-Lago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I, I like that formulation that if we if we wind up thinking this is just Trump, like we will have failed. It, it isn't just Trump. And and the thing I always again, I know you never forget this, and but I always like to remind people in the audience and every another political, you know, pundits is that even if Hillary had won, this country would still be as racist and yeah. as divided and as sexist as if as it is now. Like, you know, it, that was there and is there and needs to be dealt with. And the day that Trump leaves office, it's up to us as to whether or not it still exists then. And I was so profound. I've, I've stunned you into silence. So um, <laughs> I, I will end there. Thank you so much. I'm like, I've, I've been itching to be on this podcast. So. Yeah. And it's going to it'll happen again, I promise. And that's it for the show. Uh, thanks, as usual, for making it to this closing. I really, really appreciate it. If you have any comments or feedback for the show, you can tweet at us, which is really me, um, at Crooked Friends, at Crooked underscore Friends. Uh, you can also tweet at me directly, um, Anna Marie Cox, at Anna Marie Cox. Uh, you can give feedback to our guests uh, at Parker Malloy and at D St. Felix. That's at D S T F E L I X. And you can, of course, write the pod. The address for that is with friends like pod at Gmail. Again, that's with friends like pod at Gmail. We take a listener questions. Um, if you want to send it as a voicemail, you can, a uh, voice memo, uh, or you can just provide your phone number and, and we'll get in touch with you that way. Let's see, you made it this far. That means you like the show. Please rate and review on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And just thanks. i uh, gotten a lot of great feedback lately, uh, show ideas, um, some uh, very uh, constructive criticism about how often I use the word like. Uh, I want you to know that I hear that. Um, I may not change, but I do hear it. And I hope you guys are enjoying this as much as I am. I will see you or hear you or you'll hear me next week. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. 
Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.